you're vulnerable. You're putting out your idea into the, you know, especially in that seed round and it's not real yet. It's not out in the world yet. And so it's really, you're selling this vision that is so, you care so passionately about. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be exactly what you, you feel like is your best foot forward ever. Everybody has some kind of network. And I know that that comes with some overlays of privilege, but I, I do believe that we all have a place to begin. And then it's really about grow your network as quickly and as big as you can so that you can get to those no's because you're getting a lot of them. We got a lot of no's. Have you ever wondered what goes on in a child's head when they play? When Jessica Rolfe launched Love Every, she made it her mission to create toys that are intentionally designed to develop your child's brain while being fun and sustainable. This isn't Jessica's first venture in the space. She built and sold the successful Happy Family Organics brand prior to focusing her attention on another facet of child's lives, play. From educating us about the value of stage-based playing to sharing her best advice on raising money for two different companies, this episode is full of candid reveals and entrepreneurial wisdom. Coming up, you'll hear what happened when Jessica spotted a gap in the organic baby food market. How trial and error with product design for Happy Family led to an explosion in demand for the organic baby food products how being transparent about mistakes can lead to a stronger relationship with your customer, why the timing of your customer feedback is important for product planning, the qualities Jessica looks for in prospective work relationships, and why you should file your nose when fundraising under a future possible yes. Finally, Jessica shares her typical day outside of work and what you should prioritize when managing a company and having a family. This is the Entreprenista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Jessica, we are so excited to sit down and finally have this conversation with you. I was so happy to be introduced to you by our mutual friend, Zach, from from Cornell, as we are both graduates of Cornell. And I had actually heard about you several years ago because one of our clients at Socialfly is Happy Family. And I know you're one of the original founders of Happy Family. So Courtney and I would really just love to hear your entrepreneurista story, how you got started with Happy Family, and then I can't wait to dive into your new company, Love Every. Yeah, so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And it just means so much that I'm talking also to a customer. So (laughs) it's so fun that you guys have little ones at home and can really get it. Well, I am a, a raving, raving Love Every fan. So we can talk all about how incredible this company is that you've started. Yes. I've seen Stephanie's Instagrams and it looks so cool. I don't have a baby. I have a dog. So when you're expanding into the dog category, let me know. (laughs) Yes. We actually have a fun idea to do like a, you have a dog and then you are going to have a baby. How do you honor your first baby, your pet? And so there's, there's some fun things that we could do there. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. So maybe we can brainstorm on that later, but yeah. So I, my first company co-founded happy baby. And when we first entered the market, 
in 2006, only 3% of all baby food consumed was organic. And so a lot of the processed jars and Earth's Best was sort of the main organic brand. And we felt like, my partner Shazi and I felt like there was just a real opportunity for something different in the baby food space. And so Shazi had this great idea to do a fresh baby food sold nationwide. And we started getting into it and realized fresh baby food is actually really hard to produce on a national scale. You know, it's really hard to keep peas fresh. So we ended up moving to frozen and launched our frozen cubes in the freezer section of Happy Baby. A long story short, the, nobody really ever bought the frozen baby food, which was kind of sad, but it's really asking consumers to change behavior. And so, you know, going into the freezer is so different from going to the, to the baby food aisle. And so we then started launching dry snacks and dry cereal, our pouches, and the business really took off. So now over 36% of all baby food consumed is organic and Happy Baby is the number one brand. So I'm so proud of that. We feel really grateful to have kind of moved, helped respond to parents' needs for something different and, you know, something healthier, something really a modern brand that spoke to them and then shift the market to organic. Well, and then I had this experience with, as, a, as a mom and, you know, I had three children in the course of Scaling Happy Family and I felt so good about what I was feeding my little guys. And you know how we have those areas of confidence as a parent? It's like there's this, those little spots where you feel like you've really got this. And I felt like I knew everything there was to know about nutrition and early life. And so my little guy, I think one of his early, I remember watching him say sardines, you know, it was like one of his early like words at one. So he was just so healthy. But I remember also realizing and wondering what was happening with his developing brain. I'm so focused on feeding his body and nourishing his body. What am I doing to nourish his brain? And this is total nerd zone, but I discovered this doctoral thesis. So it was like this multi-volume document that was never really published. And it walked through all the science on early life and early childhood. And it broke it down into these little things that I could do based on what my child was wanting to learn at each stage of their development. And so I remember having this like plastic light up toy and watched him push one button and all of a sudden it's like purple cows popping out and lights are flashing. And I was like, why, how is this toy? I had sort of a new perspective. This toy isn't actually really helpful for his developing brain. It's great for me to take a shower and to get a few uh-huh. distracted minutes, but it's not what I want to kind of feed, feed his brain. And so then sort of created, came up with the idea for Love Every and co-founded the company with Rod Morris in 2017. And I know Rod Morris is your best friend's husband. How did you and him connect and start a business together? Yeah. So we were actually, my best friend and I are from Minnesota originally, and we were both trying to get our husbands to move back home because isn't that all of our motivations to just be near our parents and our family? And so we were on the phone and saying, okay, what, you know, can we, can we move back to Minnesota? Both of our husbands were like, no, it's too cold there. It's not really our vibe. And so we were, Drod and I were talking about, we're supposed to set up a call saying, okay, let's look at, analyze what other cities that we could move to. And I remember telling him, you know, by the way, I really need your advice. I've got a business idea. You're so, he's always been kind of a mentor to me in business. And he has a lot of expertise in, in consumer behavior and, you know, behavioral science. Like what, motivates people. And the core to this, to love every is how can we motivate parents and child children to have like a deeper connection? How can we be a force for, for that to happen? And so I was asking him about it. And then he said, literally the next day, he was like, how about we co-found this company? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And it was that moment that it really became real. 
What was he doing at the time that he was able to just jump on and start a, a business? Well, he was actually gainfully employed. So he was with uh, Opower, which is a company that he helped scale from like, I think, you know, from 10 million to over a billion dollar IPO. He ran half that company and, you know, a lot of people reported to him. He had, they had just gone public. And I think he was kind of looking out to what is going to be next for me. And so that's why, you know, this, this made sense for him. So how did your experience co-founding Happy Family and what you learned from the early days running that business influence some of the decisions you made early on now when starting a new business? Yeah. I mean, I think with Happy Family, we, you know, so much of it was the the first business. It's everything is so hard. And every single time you start a company, it's hard. I will say that, you know, some of the things around fundraising and figuring out how to launch a product, how to listen to customers, how to do testing. I feel like I learned so much in that decade in building Happy Family and that I was able to apply to Love Every. So every single time fundraising is hard. It was still hard with Love Every. It's really hard to convince people that you have an idea that's worth investing in, no matter what your idea is. Um, So still had some challenges there. But Overall, I think we went much deeper into testing so that we could get to product market fit much faster with Love Every than we did with Happy Family. Can you take us back to the early days of Happy Family and what those first few years were like, you know, when you had this initial idea with Shazi to start this baby food business, how did you start to grow and scale that company? Yeah, and I will correct. So it was absolutely Shazi's idea to make a meaningful brand in baby food. And she wanted, you know, again, we, she had her first idea was to do fresh baby food. When I joined her, we pivoted to frozen and those early days were so challenging. I mean, we learned so much. So, I mean, every problem imaginable in terms of just trying to figure out, you know, how to get a factory was one of the hardest things. How to get retailers to believe that you have a great product um, was a little bit easier because they were looking for something different. For us, we made so many mistakes. One of my favorite mistakes, <laughs> if I have a favorite, so many mistakes, was when we meet, we made this cereal that because people were not buying our frozen baby food. And so we had to pivot and figure something out. And so we made the cereal and it's, you know, baby cereal is very light and fluffy. And so when you fill a canister, it's like really light and fluffy when you're filling it on the production line. And so we convinced this factory to open up this cereal production line for us. And they had never made cereal before. They'd never filled cereal before. And our cereal was different. It had DHA and probiotics. And we were so excited about it. It was extra healthy. And so when you filled the can, it was really fluffy. It would like fill it almost to the top. You know, it's like a lot of air. And then we, it shipped through the manufacturing, through the logistics channel. And and it was like a third full when it got to the shelf. And it was so horrible. We ended up having so many, you know, cases of the cereal. We ended up making a little sticker that said, oops, forgive us. We're so sorry. You know, the canister might look empty, but it really, you know, it's the content settle during, during distribution. And so contact us if you need help getting a new can. But it was just, it was a real challenge figuring everything out. What did you do to, I guess, make that mistake better? I know you put a sticker on it, but how did the consumer react to getting a getting a can that says, oops, <laughs> oops, it's uh, not exactly what you bought? Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, we put the cereal on sale, so we marked it down so that people felt like they were getting a reasonable, you know, value. We tried to fix it as soon as we can, but you know, there is something about saying oops, mm-hmm. especially at the time and like really owning up to the fact that, you know, we're we made a mistake. And I think that really helped um, 
ease kind of like the confusion and the questions. How did you know it was time to, I guess, move on from Happy Family and start your own business? Yeah. So with Happy Family, so Shazi and I got the company to 63 million in sales over seven years. It was like just unbelievable, you know, kind of confluence of good timing and hustle and, you know, really answering, you know, questions that parents really had in terms of, you know, wanting a modern brand that really spoke to them nutritionally. And so we ended up selling the company to Group Danone, which is based in Paris, and then had three years we were really working to transition the company to leadership within Happy Family. So for me, I felt like, almost felt like I wasn't needed as much anymore you know, that feeling where you're there and you feel like you care so much about something, but other people are better than you and they've kind of replaced you. I think we've all been there. It's kind of hard to accept from an ego place. But I also felt this calling to create this new company, Love Every, around infant brain development. So that really, it really felt like kind of a combination of not being needed as much, feeling like my work has, was sort of done at Happy Family and then feeling called to do something new. And you mentioned you made a lot of mistakes with Happy Baby. Uh, Can you talk to us about some of the new learnings you had starting Love Every? And what was that first year like? Yeah, well, maybe I can talk about them. If we're talking about mistakes, I could talk about the mistake I just made that I was late for this podcast (laughs) because we're still dealing with it. You know, it's complex. I think that we really, I think, underestimated the passion that customers have for our products and also how much they are listening to, to us and looking to us to provide a consistent experience for their children. And so we are, as entrepreneurs, we're always want to make things better. And we're, and we're always up for like, let's, I, I, it's like you, you launch something and then you feel like the, the design is not done, right? You want to fix it. You want to change it. You want to update it based on all of that valuable customer feedback that you get. And yet with cycles of development times, what we found is that the items that we thought that people didn't value as much, which were some of the simpler items, organic balls set for a one-year-old and books that we did that, you know, talked about books that we shot about highlighting different types of foods and different things. We were in love with those products, but we felt like our customers really weren't in the beginning and they they were valuing some of the bigger, more Montessori developmental items more. And so we heard, we did a lot of survey feedback. What we didn't realize is, so we, we pivoted and we created some new items to replace some of those other smaller items in some of the books. I love that colorful book. That's Molly's favorite. <laughs> right? Right? Well, you know, it ranked really low in these customer surveys. And I think well, what you, happened- have any extras, I'll take one because it's gotten almost destroyed already because she eats it so much and I let her read it while she's eating. So there's food all over it. Well, what happens is that we actually were sending out the surveys right after the parent opened the box. So they opened the box, but we weren't waiting that additional four to six weeks for them to realize how much their children loved the materials that we put in these play kits. And we obsess over the child, the baby experience, the child experience. We don't, we think about the parent too, but we really think about the child. And so what we realize is in that we're coming to this realization now that we actually, over the course of developing and changing these items, parents were telling other parents how much their children loved these books and balls and things that we included. And, and then in that timeframe, you know, the PO was being cut, you know, before, before this learning, then being shipped and developed. And, you know, it's a long lead time, right? It's like seven months from the time that we cut a PO to when we get it into our warehouse. So now we have all this love built up for our products that we then took out of the box and replaced it with something new. And so I think that we've really realized that 
that parents and our customers really crave transparency. We were not in front of this communication. It was really not the way you guys would have recommended I handle this, <laughs> you being experts in communication. But I also think that what we realized is that we really need to test our assumptions and how we're understanding this feedback. Because again, like, you know, there's a lot of intention we put into these products. And I think if we listen almost too much to the customer or at the wrong time, we get poor, we don't get valuable feedback. What do you do in those moments when you have these hard days and these challenges or fires that come up to be able to stay grounded and still lead your team and still take care of yourself and nurture yourself? Yeah, I mean, I definitely I don't I don't know that I'm the exemplary like role model for self-care during these times. What I do find is that I talk to my coach because I sort of become I, I just become impassioned with worry and with focus around urgency on needing to do something. And I feel like what I needed to do was sort of crank up the urgency in the company around this topic um, because because a few of us were seeing the sort of beginning feedback and these in some Facebook groups, you know, that that are forming around our products that are like 21,000 people large now. So it's like, these are not like small groups. And so it's like started getting worried over the weekend. And I think I kind of show up as a bully, to be honest. And I think that I sort of railroad over and say like, we got to do something about this. Like we're setting up a meeting. You know, what are we doing? Let's problem solve together. But I show up with intensity. And I think it can be interpreted as being like bullying, I guess. And I think that that's part of what I've realized is that at certain times, that's how we need to get things done. And from from a leadership perspective, from things that we really care about, the team did amazing things. They pushed back on my assumptions. We changed our path, our course of path many different times as we problem solved this. So it was really felt like a group effort. But the intensity of just like, you got to drop everything else. This is the priority. We got to fix this, I think is is an intense experience for, for my team to be around me during those times. Maybe if I did, Maybe if I did a little bit more to ground myself in the process, it would help. But it's just not where my mind is at. I'm just, I, I can't stop thinking about a problem once it's in my head. Yeah, I could definitely relate to that. And I think ultimately it's every leader's responsibility within a company to really push things forward and, and solve problems fast. So certainly very, very relatable. One question that I had was, how do you divide up responsibilities between you and your co-founder? Who's who's responsible for what and how do you I, how do you deal with conflict? Yeah, I mean I think that on the surface we show up as very different people which is our strength. And we do have, you know, division of responsibilities and the beginning when you're starting a company, I think so much is done together and that's just the healthiest best way to be. And then as you start to scale and things start to sort of both founders have put their imprint on a vision or a department or an initiative, then it can kind of be owned by one or the other, but it really does need that collective kind of togetherness time in the beginning to work through problems and be on calls together and kind of do it all together. Now at this point, Rod runs revenue for us. So he's all about our growth marketing strategies and really scaling our company. And I run the product side of the business and the customer experience. So so I think at this point, you know, we stay calibrated. I, I would say that the the problem with kind of being in these more siloed places is that one can be seen as maybe having a more creative job than the other, 
Rod is actually an incredibly creative person. And so I need his input on product. And so to be able to make sure that I continue to pull him in and give ideas. And, and then I want to be able to put in ideas too on the marketing side. And so I think that now we're doing this kind of dance of let's make sure that we don't get pigeonholed into kind of tight archetypes of, you know, this is the founder that does this and they're the more organized operational type. And this is the really creative visionary one that's more crazy and throws things against the wall. Like we, we never want to be that. I think that we're both, you know, we're, we, we all as individuals have a lot of capacities. And I think that when you start to kind of, people start to sort of create a binary approach to founders, like the, the two founders, you know, in their distinct roles, I think that that can be dangerous. A lot of our listeners have co-founders and, you know, Courtney and I have been in business together for what almost 10 years now and have learned a lot about managing a relationship as a co-founder and also friends. Are there any other tips that you can share for our listeners who have a co-founder in terms of managing your relationship, best practices, other lessons learned? I think the first thing is, I mean, I would love to, let's do part two where I get to talk to you guys about how you manage your relationship because I love this question. I think that the first thing is, is to make sure in selecting a co-founder is to make sure that they are a growth mindset kind of person. So can they take feedback? Can they really digest that feedback? And are they, are they okay to have really honest, transparent conversations and look at themselves as well as looking at you? So I think that that's a really kind of core sort of important thing to check off when you're considering inviting somebody to be in your business. And I would say that Rod and I are definitely both growth mindset people. We also have a lot of deep trust in because of our kind of family connection. The the thing that we do not enough of that we always do better is when we can have our one-on-one time. And when you're scaling a company, it's just really easy to, you know, prioritize meetings with direct reports, prioritize meetings on projects and just not, it's like a marriage, right? Like you just, it's easy to like get distracted by, you know, by all the other things in life, your work or your kids or your other activities and your workouts or whatever it is. And you just don't, you find at the end of the day, you haven't invested enough time in your marriage. And so... I think that treating it as that relationship, we always we always do. If we have enough time, we can always get to consensus. I will also say that Rod and I are 50-50 partners. So we set up the company to be 50-50. I was 49 in a 49-51 relationship with Happy Family. And it was really important to me to make sure that Rod and I were equals because I think that that is actually how it plays out anyway. And we have to get to consensus. It's not like, you know, one that's 49, the 51 person can say, well, you just need to do that. That would never work, right? You're, you're co-founding the company. You're building it together. And so that has been a really against all of their advice from VCs and from sort of like structural finance people who all said that you need to have one person to call the shots. I actually believe that you really need to invest in that partnership and you both need to be on the same page, however long it takes to get there. Those are such good tips and pieces of advice. Thank you for sharing that. Coming up, you'll hear how Jessica manages to set boundaries between work and family life, especially when her co-founder is her best friend's husband and her best advice for raising venture capital. So a question I have for you is we we know how important the co-founder relationship is. And I often joke that it feels like I'm married to Stephanie because I spent so much time with her over the past 10 years. Ha- and, and knowing that your co-founder relationship started as a result of a family connection or a best friend connection, do your families get involved in the business? And how do you manage that when you're together, getting together as a family or friends? 
Yeah. You know, it actually, I'm really glad you asked this because I think that on the surface, it kind of looks idyllic to have your, you know, best friend, like move to Boise and then, you know, to be able to partner, being able to be near her is really a result of, you know, this business. It's, it took a while. I think it was hard. It was hard for Rod's wife and my, my, you know, my best friend to, to kind of, I think it was hard for all of us to sort of navigate these boundaries. And I want to be the one that finds out everything from Andrea about what's happening in their personal life. And if something just kind of, you know, happens to interfere with a meeting or something, and I discover something that's going on with their personal life, with their kids, through Rod, it doesn't feel the same as the, you know, having that like core relationship with Andrea. And so I think we're working through it. But like everything, you know, there were times when there have been times where it's hard. And I think we try to just keep our primary relationships, you know, really focused on the love that we, that I have for Andrea. And, you know, we have our time alone together and we, and then when we're getting together, the four of us, if it gets too much about business, it actually takes away because it, it doesn't, Rod and I can get in a rabbit hole on it. So we try not to talk about business when we're all four of us are together. And then Rod and I you know, really do stay on business. Like we you know, we're, we're business partners first and foremost. And so it's a pretty easy boundary for us. I have a question about the growth, the incredible growth of your business over the past few years. I know that you shared, you raised money for this business. Did you start that process, you know, day one, when you had this idea, you knew you had to raise money to be able to grow this business? Yeah, Rod and I started by investing our own capital into kind of like getting the company as far along as we could before we went out for a seed round. But I think that there is something really important in getting others to believe in your vision and invest as opposed to self-funding. If you have the capacity to self-fund, self-funding like far, far in to the trajectory of the business. I think that there is something really valuable about getting that push and that market-based feedback on, on, are you really on the right track? And it becomes a sort of like bigger energy. We have, you know, hundred and more investors, even in through our early seed rounds. And so that's a lot of people that really care about our success that are telling all of their friends that are helping to mobilize sort of momentum for Love Every. So we did our own investment. And then before we launched, we raised our seed round to get capital to get the company to where we wanted it to be at launch. How much did you raise in your seed round? We raised 3.1 million in our first seed round which is a large C round for us. And we raised over six for our a series A. and it, But four of that was really from seed investors that were following on. We went in, which I think in retrospect actually made it harder for us to raise our series B because no institutionals had enough of a stake in a, in a lower valuation to feel like they were excited to do a bigger follow-on. We ended up figuring it out, but our Series B, we had institutionals in it, two million combined from Reach Capital, which invests in early in education. We had Collaborative Fund, Founders Collective, which is a seed fund for 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 some, you know, it's, it's a very well-known seed fund, and some others. And I think that that was a like really positive to get a lot of input. We had a little bit from of money from Mavron as sort of like a let's just test this out and see in our in our series A and then they led our series B. Can you share any tips about the pitching process and getting in front of these funds? A lot of our listeners are thinking about raising money and looking to learn more about that process. 
Yeah, it is. So first, I think just getting your sort of emotions straight, it's kind of like where you where you want to be showing up emotionally to this process. It is really hard. It's really hard for everyone. It's hard for second time entrepreneurs. I think it's hard for third. I don't know what it's like to be a third time entrepreneur. And but it's got to be hard then too. you're vulnerable, you're putting out your idea into the you know, especially in that seed round, and it's not real yet. It's not out in the world yet. And so it's really, you're selling this vision that is so, you care so passionately about. I think, of course, you know, getting a lot of feedback on your deck and trying to get, you know, perspective on presenting yourself in the best way is great. But I think that it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be exactly what you you feel like is your best foot forward ever. So it'll never be really done in that deck. That deck will never really be done. And I think just putting out, make, being very methodical about it. Rod is incredibly diligent about the fundraising process. And he has a list of, you know, list of investors, a list of people that we want to get to know. You can send that spreadsheet out to anybody that you might know to try and build your network into some of these meetings. Everybody has some kind of network. And I know that that comes with some like overlays of privilege, but I, I do believe that we all have a place to begin. And then it's really about, some of us have a really great place to begin and others have just maybe, you know, not much at all. But I think it's just really figuring out how you can grow your network as largely, you know, as quickly and as big as you can so that you can get to those no's because you're going to get a lot of them. We got a lot of no's. And then the hardest part is, is keeping those no's on the list. And then diligently six months later, even though they said no, sharing, you're updating your progress with them so that maybe they could be in the next round. And that's hard from an ego place to just be like, I know you rejected me, but do you want to hear more? Do you have any success stories to share where someone said no to you maybe a few times and then finally through persistence, they said yes? You know, I think that I don't have that example, but what I do have now is people who said no to us in the first two rounds are now asking to invest now. You know, we, we're not actually in a place to to, to want that investment at this point. But I think that, it, you know, I think that there is something about having multiple, like over time, get to know somebody really does build trust. And from an investor perspective, they're really investing in you in the beginning anyway. And so I think being able to be really disciplined about saying we're going out in, um, in between our seed and our series A, we closed our seed round, we're going to go out for a series A, we've got a, you know, six months after we close our seed, you're exhausted, you're all about building the business, you have, you have no interest in going out and meeting with any of those investors. Again, you're just like, oh, like that was just the worst. But you just say, nope, in January, we're doing it. We're putting up together a little deck. We're reaching out. We're seeing who wants to meet for 20 minutes just to get an update on the business. So they can see that you do what you said you were going to do and that you're, I think that showing that that like follow-up and that persistence is obviously a great characteristic for an entrepreneur that they want to see. So I think that really pays off. You have had incredible growth over the past few years. And I would imagine, you know, growing and scaling your team has been quite an interesting journey, especially now that we've been in the midst of, of a pandemic and onboarding in, in this era. Can you share a little bit about what your experience has been like growing your team so quickly and maybe some tips and learning lessons? Yeah. I mean, we have 113 people now and 60 of those individuals, actually more, I think we're now at, because we're adding every, you know, every week, but something like 60 to 70, those individuals have been hired since March, since the pandemic. So this is a huge amount of influx of, of people who have been hired since we've been on, you know, lockdown work from home. My co-founder is a genius at recruiting. He takes it really seriously. I, you know, 
the tips that I can provide are really, you know, come from him. <laughs> I will say the one thing that I'm really good at is pre-pandemic is giving out coupons. And so I ended up, was at the at a music concert, music festival day kind of festival. And I gave a coupon out to a pregnant woman. Turns out six months later, she reached out to me. She has a background at IDEO and has done design thinking and innovation for many companies. And we had a position to, for our director of product development open. And if I hadn't given her the coupon, she wouldn't have known about Love Every. So <laughs> I think it's like, you know, recruiting happens kind of all out there. But I think, yeah, being being really focused on it. It's really important and, and spending the time on it. It's really hard when you're scaling to take the time. We use an app called Breezy, which is like really great. It's a system to help with scaling and recruiting, managing your employees through the pipeline. We're right now really reevaluating all of our recruiting for diversity inclusion goals and just making sure that we're really presenting ourselves in the best way and that we're networking with the right groups to get the broadest group of applicants possible. Do you have any tips to share? And I know you shared that you learned a lot from Rod and he's really great at recruiting, but what has he taught you about what questions to ask or what to look for in an interview? What are some red flags for you? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I like to ask about is just like, what are you working on as a person? What is, what's showing up in your personal life and in your work life? What are some themes that have come up for you? And if you get sort of like a a really surface level answer to that question, which is a pretty deep question, <laughs> can be, you know, like then you can sort of try and probe a little bit deeper and ask, no, really, I'm not asking that, you know, you work too hard or that you, you know, that sort of typical kind of like fake, fake weakness answer, but really asking, you know, and, and then when you get down to people being vulnerable, like sometimes I'm just insecure and I don't speak up in meetings or I'm not presenting myself in the best way, or I've been really working on listening more, or I've been really looking, working on, you know, getting feedback and and really like taking that feedback to heart and really committing to change. I think that you can get to kind of the heart of whether they're a growth mindset person or not. And I think that can be really helpful. Any tips that you can share about managing your team remotely now? It's hard. I will say that I think that this time has shown us all that we can do so much. We can do so much. And it's hard to be on the screens all day. And I think that everybody, you know, there's some days where I just need to, you know, take a walk and do audio instead of video Zoom. But overall, I think that it really is a really good, it's a good, I have a lot of hope for society, both from a climate and, and a talent perspective. So I think that we can hire more diverse talent if we're able to do it more remotely. And I think that we, from a climate perspective, we're not flying around all the time. It, it really does in commuting. I think that it can really help. So I, I'm very curious to see kind of how things land post-pandemic. We do love and value the human in-person you know, connection. And so we are primarily building our you know, base in Boise and we're building out an office to accommodate everyone. And I think that I thrive because I'm more of an extrovert in 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 person a place, but I also think that there's spaces for you know let's do this remotely, let's like do a video call instead instead of flying somewhere. So, take me back to the launch of Love Every that day when you finally went live. What was that moment like for you? You know what's funny? You I get really anxious before I launch a any of our product launches. I've always I've gotten like really nervous and kind of crabby like the the in the weeks leading up to the launch because I think that I'm I'm just so nervous to there's so much testing you can do you can try and you know put your heart into something but then you just don't that's the joy and that's like why I think we're all so 
loving, you know, that everybody in this community <laughs> loves building companies. It's, it's just like so exciting to just, there's only so much, you know, there's some things you're just out of your control. What are the people going to think truly once it's live? So for me, you know, sometimes it can kind of be a letdown. We ended up launching a, a play gym in a very crowded category where there were a lot of other play gyms with just a lot of different brands and the price points were a third of what we launched our play gym with. But we felt so clear about our intention that parents needed something different and wanted something different and had an insight there. And I think that the sales, you know, the sales were were really good on that first day, but they have only built so much since. And I think it's it's now number one seller on Amazon from a revenue perspective. And like we've just really like this gym has been so great. And I think sometimes the day you launch, you expect it to kind of like all come together and everything all the feelings to feel all the feelings of pride and excitement. I think you can it can be a little bit of a letdown sometimes. And so just making sure to take time six months after the launch, a year after the launch and remember how special it was. I mean my, I would say to myself at night, number one, Amazon, number one, Amazon, before I go to sleep at night and the vision for this play gym. And it, it, it is. And how, you know, it's like sometimes you forget to remember like how it felt before, but to see those shop of, there's something really powerful about direct to consumer businesses where you can see the, the orders in. And I'm oh, like, it's the best. It's like a slot machine, right? You just oh, see it coming it in. So, <laughs> it's so exciting. When we launched, yes, exactly. It was so exciting. And we, when we launched our subscription program a year after we launched the company in 2018, it was so amazing to see these names and these people. Like I was just like, oh my gosh, this is real. This is happening. So, so tell us about your marketing strategy because that is clearly part of the ultimate success of why your, well, your products have taken off because they're incredible products, but people have to find out about them. So what did you do when you launched Market the Play Gym? And then as you pivoted and then launched the subscription model, what has been your secret to success? Well, I will say that, again, this is a co-founder driven answer because my co-founder is so brilliant in so many areas of marketing. I will say that when we so our strategy was to launch the gym and grow our brand awareness in a category that already exists in a place where people are already shopping. So that's why Amazon, you know, seemed to be like the best retailer in addition to our own site. And then when we launched the Play Kits, that is a direct to just us. Our, our early loaning program is you can you we want to have a direct relationship with families throughout their child's learning journey. And so for us, we really wanted to go big and grab market share because we felt like we really had something special and especially in this early learning program. And we were worried that if we didn't... It also, I think that it's really important to feel like you're really investing... You're investing your child's education. You want to feel like the company has our act together and that the printed materials are of really high quality and beautifully photographed, that the products themselves are beautifully made and that they're custom. You know, we, we make everything ourselves. And so in all of that is a lot of expense. The Also, the other thing I will say is that in that kind of mindset is we need to buy our customers in the beginning. We need to, we need to put out a bunch of ads and we need to obviously grow our you know, social following as much as we can and try and grow that organic growth. But until people, these products are, people are aware of them and they're in their homes, it, it's, nobody is going to know. And so we trusted that once we were able to adopt, get those early adopter customer base, at scale that they would tell their friends. And that is exactly what's happening. So we're on this like really exciting path right now where organic growth is so strong. But in the beginning, we were criticized for spending so much on advertising. And I think that 
we all love to have the dream that we can like create this product and it's just going to be a runaway hit through word of mouth. But I think that sometimes that doesn't happen. There's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of things that people are paying attention to. And so I really credit Rod for having a very thoughtful strategy. We are, we are, we are investing in, in ads digitally, you know, and, and trying to put out the best creative for those ads. And then once it's in people's homes, they will start talking about it. And that's exactly what's happened. Well, that's exactly my, the process, how I found out about Love Every. I got targeted with Facebook and Instagram ads and then influencers who I follow were posting about it and then went over to your website, didn't buy right away, started getting retargeted with more ads and then realized I needed these products for my daughter because I had all of these light up plastic you know, not great products for her that I realized she wasn't learning from. And I wanted to have these products that I knew that teachers and people like you were developing that were the right things for her to be learning from. So I, your marketing works. (laughs) Yay. And now you're telling all these people through this podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you. On all my social channels. And that's exactly, it's exactly what our business at Social Fly does. And I, you did a great job targeting me as a mom. And here I am now, and we're having this conversation. <laughs> Do you work with any agencies or is all of your marketing done internally? So we've, we worked with, we work with some agencies for producing some creative, but our, we've done a lot more in-house now. So we have a, like doing a lot of video and we have brainstorm sessions with a broader group of people around our social and also our, our ads and we're creating our own creative. And then we have somebody who's a really great talented team in, in marketing. So we've, in the beginning we used, we definitely were more leaning towards agencies. And then we've, since we've closed our series C, we've been building that capacity in house now. Up next, how Jessica stays grounded and spends her time outside of work. Jessica, I want to know what a typical day outside of work looks like for you. Oh my gosh. I, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I love my work so much. So I do work a lot, but I love it. And then my time is really spent with my kids trying to be present or with my work. So, and then my, my husband, we were, we're trying to do more date nights, but I wake up, B wakes me up in the morning. She comes and wakes us up and she comes in and this is super embarrassing for you guys only, but she still likes to cuddle me and has a little bit of mama milk. <laughs> how, really how old, old is she? She's old. She's five. But, so she, it's crazy. It's crazy. But she comes in, cuddles. It's like, that's going to be me. <laughs> I mean, I like, I'll just put it out there. It's, it's probably nuts, but, but that's where we are. And we both, you know, still enjoy it, those cuddles. And so, and then my kids, I try and I, I, they, they take piano lessons. So I help them with piano in the morning sometimes. And then I barely shower. I brush my teeth really quick and then start and jump on because we don't have to commute anymore. So I get to work. And then at the end of the day, my like around six, we have dinner and we've been able to, I mean, for me, I've really kind of looked at what are the things that I can look past and, and, a, and a clean house is something that I look past. I'm really trying to not, you know, I just let it, I let a lot go when you're trying to work and be a parent. So we have a pretty messy house, but the kids are, you know, happy and we're all, you know, I think doing well. And we also have been able to, I've worked on trying to, how do you, out, what can you outsource? Because as a parent, like I can't like work and be a parent and, you know, cook a great meal and, you know, make sure we're doing all the laundry and stuff. And so I've gotten to a place 
in my career where I feel really privileged and really lucky to have support on some of the household tasks, which I miss. I miss doing, you know, I miss, and someday I, I will when things slow down a little bit. But at this point in the company scaling, I need help at home. So yeah, it's and tough. not enough hours in a day. How have you been managing the last few months with working from home and having kids at home and probably doing distance learning? Yeah, it, it has been really hard. I feel like we're finally at a groove. So we ended up hiring a person to help us at home with the kids because, and at Love Every, we pay a stipend to employees to have care, one-on-one care at home because it's just impossible to work and to try and be supportive of at-home learning. So you have somebody to help there. And you know, it's we're better now. I think that it's better because things have settled down. It was really hard in the beginning. My little guy, I think, had... Got, got really sick. I don't know what it was. It looked like, you know, he had a lot of this, the, the COVID symptoms, but he was sick for weeks and ended up having to get steroids. And it was just, it was just really stressful trying to take care of him and then take, you know, make sure the other kids were okay and getting enough attention and then work. So yeah, it's, it's hard. There's no answer here, except for, I think, let go of things that you don't, that really ultimately aren't important that bug you, but that aren't important, like a clean house. Yeah, I agree. What would we be surprised to learn about you? I sang a cappella at Cornell, Stephanie. Oh my I don't gosh. know if you. Oh my God, well, Stephanie sings the treble. You do? Yes, I do. Can you guys? Can you both sing? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Courtney. I was not in an acapella group there. I just grew up doing musical theater. So I have a oh, fun. background. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. Yes. Um, and I already told you something that I never reveal about, you know, B still having cozy time with me in the morning. So <laughs> we've covered that. That's good. Uh, that's really good to know. It makes me feel better. Well, Molly's only almost 16 months, but I keep thinking, I'm like, I don't know how I'm ever going to whatever stop breastfeeding. <laughs> I'm home. I know. I know. It's so sweet. Do you have a favorite mantra or quote that you live your life by, kind of like your guiding principle? Yeah. I mean, I do love humble hustle, work hard, be kind, you know, those kinds of sayings. But I, yeah, there's a mantra that I, if I'm struggling with something, um, Patricia Moreno is a, she does these like affirmation slash workout things that I haven't done in years, but I always remember this phrase of like, what I desire is on its way. It is coming to me in greater amounts than I can ever imagine. This is the vision I choose to hold now and forever. And it's kind of, it's cheesy, but it's actually really comforting and, and it's empowering. Do you share things like that with your team? I, you know, I used to, when we were in the office, I used to give, just leave power cards on people's office, <laughs> on people's desks. But you know, I haven't recently. I should do some virtual power cards or something. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I do. But I do 100% believe that we, that our mindset does influence, you know, what we're becoming. And it's, it's hard to have discipline around that. It is. So I'm not the role model there, but I definitely try and I, I believe that. If you could give the entrepreneurista audience one essential business tip to leave them with, what would you say? And you've provided so many. This is for people who have product businesses, I think in particular, like physical product. But for me, my obsession with safety and quality is really, I think, how we've been able to scale both companies to partly where they are. So I think that it's an easy thing to 
overlook, but I think it's super important, especially in being in the baby and young children's business. So it's something that investors don't ask you about. It is not fun to talk about. It's not like it's cool marketing. It's like people that are working so diligently in operations and in sort of the parts of the business that aren't seen in the front lines where you only see it if something goes wrong, honor those people and really see them and see them for the work that they're doing every day to keep everybody afloat. So I'm really obsessed with safety and quality. It's definitely a good tip. What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? That is a good question. I mean, I think it means to, to kind of to kind of be your fullest self and live and get I say that one of my mission my kind of life purpose is to give and receive everything I can in each moment. And so mm. that's an aspiration, but just really, you know, these companies take so much of us, but we also get so much from them. We learn so much. So that is a really powerful part of being an entrepreneur. I love that. I'm going to write that down. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation. You have built two incredible businesses and changed the lives of so many parents, children, and I cannot wait to continue to follow your journey and stay in touch and see all that you are going to build because you have already impacted my life so much. And I know everything you've shared and the companies that you are creating are going to help so many of our, of our listeners and entrepreneurs as well. So thank you so much. Oh, so been so fun talking with you guys. Thank you. Jessica, where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, become a subscriber of Love Every? Yeah. So it's loveevery.com. So it's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com. And we can, you can follow us at Love Every on Instagram and loveevery.com on our website. So excited to to be a part of all of those babies' lives. Incredible. Thank you so much. And I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.